1944. It's a commencement address for um, people that are graduating from King's College London. And uh, the giver of that commencement address is none other than C.S. Lewis. And um, this commencement address is a little different from what you might ordinarily hear at a commencement address. It's not about, go change the world, and uh, you have no idea how good you've got it. It Actually, uh, C.S. Lewis came off in that commencement address as something of a warning. A warning to those who are about to enter into their occupations. And if you go online or if you look in your bulletin, there's a link to, to that resource that you should, uh, maybe you can follow up later. It doesn't take long. But, but that commencement address was, was speaking unto an impulse among those who are about to enter their jobs. And this was the impulse. That when they get into their careers, whatever that might be, it's a little bit anachronistic to say that when they look at the org chart, they're going to see levels of hierarchy of levels of authority and responsibility. And that's going to be on the printed page. And yet, the longer they stay in that job, they're going to discover that there is another unwritten kind of org chart out there. Another unwritten, unspecified, unspoken of hierarchy, uh, a, a set of concentric circles, the center of which being those with the most authority or power. And the impulse will be that you will want to become part of that. You don't know how to get into it, and once you're in it, you don't know if you can stay in it, and you might even feel the impulse to keep people out of it, but that's, that's that little inner ring, as he called it. This little club of people that you think that is what you want to be in. And so he said in that address, I believe that in all men's lives at certain periods, and in many men's lives at all periods, between infancy and extreme old age, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring and the terror of being left outside. Unless you take measures to prevent it, this desire is going to be one of the chief motives of your life from the first day on which you enter your profession until the day when you are too old to care. Whatever organization, institution, neighborhood, club, country club, whatever it might be, you're going to notice some sort of inner circle and you're going to feel this impulse to go, I want to be in that one. And you might do just about anything to get to it. And he's warning them. And he's warning us. But you know what? That impulse doesn't begin when you graduate from whatever studies you go. It actually begins much earlier. It may even begin as early as seventh grade lunch. Um, my kids went through the diary of a wimpy kid phase. And if you know that series of books, it's about Greg, this sort of hapless pre-adolescent who is trying to find his place in this world like we all are. And you remember, you remember junior high and you felt like, gosh, who am I going to ever connect with? And, and what do you notice? You go into a lunchroom and you see it. And so, you know, adults, I'd like you to think back to when you were in junior high. And kids, if you're still here, I want you to think back to last Tuesday. Because you know, in a room like that, there are clumps of people. And in my world and in my day, there were the popular kids and then there were the geeks and the dweebs and the nerds and the whole range of nomenclature that I'm sure has all changed, but always probably means the same thing. In Diary of a Wimpy Kid, Greg is that kid who's trying to find his place in this world, who's trying to find friends, who's trying to find his little niche, his little inner circle. And of course, part of it takes place in the lunchroom. And so at one moment in one of those books, um, Greg says this, I've noticed that at my school, the most popular guys have a funny sidekick. And girls never go for the funny sidekick. So Fregley, 
who is this other, more, even more hapless kid. So Fregley wouldn't even be a threat to me if he's my sidekick. Today at lunch, I went to find Fregley to invite him to sit at our table. He was so far back in the line to get a seat that he was out in the hallway near the boys' bathroom. I asked Fregley if he knew how to do any tricks. And he took off his shirt and put bubble gum in his belly button, and then, no lie, he started chewing it. <laughs> Word of Fregley's talent got around, and for the rest of the lunch period, almost every boy in our class was at our table wanting to see what else Fregley could chew. In fact, it got so crowded, there wasn't even a place for me to sit. So much for his mission to find a place where he might be welcomed, respected, cherished. It's just the inner circle writ large in seventh grade. And that impulse is cultivated over decades. And if C.S. Lewis is right, it will hang with us forever unless we take measures to prevent it. It will dominate us. For those of you that are just joining us, we're listening to a letter the very earliest document we have from the New Testament that was written by the Apostle Paul to the churches of Galatia. And I know that what we've heard from him so far, in a lot of ways, if you've never heard him speak this before, you're like, this is bizarre. Like last week, Ben preached from the earlier part of chapter 2, which talks a lot about circumcision. Oh, wonderful. And this week, guess what the conversation starter is? It's all about who gets to sit with whom at lunch. And those categories may sound so bizarre to you, kind of like, why am I sitting here through this? But folks, I'm here to tell you that all that talk about circumcision and all this talk you're going to hear today about who's going to sit with whom at lunch has everything to do with the inner ring. It has everything to do with the wondering about who's in, about who's okay, about who's good, about who's cherished. Those old categories are only an older way of speaking of the same thing that Greg and C.S. Lewis are talking about. Who will have, metaphorically speaking, a seat at the table? The table of welcome, the table of worth, the table of nourishment. Here's the thing, though. If that impulse that C.S. Lewis is true, then that's something we have to break free from. Or it will dominate us. And the question is, how do you and I break free from wanting to be part of some sort of inner circle all the time that it dominates our lives? Paul is here to tell us that the only way is to consider about the only table and the only inner ring that matters. And on what basis one might become part of it. We're going to dine in today. And consider what it means to be at the table of God's welcome and in the place of his inner ring. We're going to find three reasons why it's true. I've asked Noel Christ, who is anything but a wimpy kid, to come read our passage from Galatians chapter 2. If you're able to stand, we'll be in chapter 2 starting in verse 11. Would you stand? But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray from their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, 
I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I die to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks to Paul, it may be the only time you ever hear in the same sentence the two words, circumcision party. You're welcome. Okay. We're catching Paul mid-thought, I know. Ben left you off last week in verse 10. We're picking up without Paul even taking a breath. So I got to sort of, if you will, set the table, okay? Where are we? Um, newsflash, Jesus was a Jew. What? He's a Jew. He's born with Jewish parents. He's, he's, he's nurtured in the law. And, and you remember the scene, he's 12 years old and he's sitting in the temple after having run off from his parents, bad Jesus. And he's um, talking to all the rabbis and they're like, where did he, this kid get that much learning? Like he's getting it. And if you wanted to sort of follow the lion's share of Jesus's theological uh, bike rack fights with the rabbis of his day had everything to do with his version or his understanding of the law. Because in a lot of times he was being accused of misunderstanding it, when in fact he was the one to say, I think you're actually missing it. He was there to clarify what the law was up to. He was there to uphold what the law was really about. And, and there was a few moments in which Jesus would come and say of himself that he was here to fulfill the law. At which point everybody said, I'm sorry, you said what? Yes, I'm here to fulfill the law. And people thought he was nuts. And it eventually got him killed. He was there to speak of the law, to uphold the law, to clarify the law, and in some ways, for some form or fashion, to fulfill it. And so, news spreads that he's coming, and people have come to say, at last, Israel is going to be saved, whatever that might mean. He's here to, you know, offload the Romans. He's there to bring in a new world, bring heaven on earth. And, and, then, and then the word gets around that actually Jesus is here not just for Jews, he's here for Gentiles too, those who are non-Jews. Which then raises a question. All right, if um, the Jews are given the law and now Jesus has actually come to bring Jews and Gentiles together into one new people, well, how does the Gentiles relate to the law? They weren't given the law, so what do they do with the law? And if you read the book of Acts, and as you're listening here in this Paul's letter to the church of Galatia, that's the question du jour. How do the Gentiles relate to the law? Because if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that there are plenty of laws in the Old Testament that had a lot to do with food what you could and could not eat as a way of obedience unto the Lord to say to the Lord, we believe we are a people set apart and therefore there are some things we will not eat. 
in order to, to designate ourselves as those who are uniquely set apart for his purposes. But though that's written in the books, from that time forward, rabbis and Pharisees and all the like of the theological class had to kind of make extrapolations and new circumstances and new realities. And, and the tradition unfolded that at some point, Jews began to think, well, if Gentiles are eating these things that I ought not eat, then maybe I ought not eat with Gentiles. And on a couple occasions in the New Testament, you hear even Jews speak of not even wanting to enter in to Gentiles' homes, lest they were eating foods that were not only not allowed, but eating foods that they had sacrificed to idols. So along comes Jesus to come speak of the law in a way that nobody had heard before, in a ways that were found, many people found scandalous. And then something happens in Acts chapter 10 to Peter. He goes up for a nap, has a vision, down comes this picnic blanket with all of these animals that were in the Old Testament considered unclean. And he hears a voice, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter says, ha ha, this is funny, where's the hidden camera? No, I'm not doing that. I know the law. Three times, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. And Peter fights with the angel of the Lord's voice. I can't, that's not clean. And God says, Don't call unclean what I have declared clean. Rise, kill, and eat, Peter. Now, what was that for? Because there was about to be somebody to come visit Peter, a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius, who was a Gentile, a God-fearing Gentile. And Peter gets this little object lesson in how God has made all foods clean to prepare Peter for understanding that the Gentiles, that God has come for the Gentiles in Jesus. The food was one thing. The Gentiles were another. And Peter gets that. And Peter welcomes Cornelius into his home. And they begin to eat. And Peter begins to understand that in Jesus it sounds like I may eat with Gentiles and not worry about those food laws or worry about whether or not these Gentiles are subscribing to those same laws. Fast forward to where we are here in Galatians 2. Peter is for a season eating with the Galatians, with the Gentiles in Antioch. And then guess what happens? Some of those people that you've heard Paul rail against earlier in this letter, these, these folks who are Jews but who also believed in Jesus, who believed that you had to subscribe to the fullness of God's law in order to be welcomed at the God's table, they come and whisper in Peter's ear, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're eating with Gentiles and you're eating all those other foods. Do you not know that you are making yourself ceremonially unclean before God by eating with them? And Peter like, does the whole second-guessing thing, and he finally says, uh, Psst, Barnabas, we should go. We should not be eating with them. And so they you know, tell the Gentiles, uh, sorry, we've got to go rescue the sitter. We can't eat with you anymore. Um, so they back off, and they say, we can't eat with you anymore. Paul gets one to that. Paul comes to Peter and doesn't beat around the bush. He opposes him to his face, and he says to Peter, what are you doing? What are you doing? doing and what is paul's problem with what peter is doing for one he's being a hypocrite because he's suddenly refusing to eat with gentiles because gentiles are eating all of those foods that were once proscribed in the old testament but the thing is peter's not doing all of the law fully he's living like a gentile but he's asking the gentiles to live like jews that's hypocrisy but paul's greater beef with Peter was not his hypocrisy, is that he was distorting 
the very essence of the message that comes to us in Jesus. That Peter had fallen for the bait about what those other voices had come to distort the gospel in. And so, whereas Peter is talking about who might be admitted to his table, Paul is saying that by Peter's actions, he's actually having something to say about who is invited to God's table. Who is allowed to believe in the welcome and the provision and the kindness and the goodness and the delight of God? Who has been invited to God's table? Because by, ver- by Peter's very words and actions, he was saying something dramatically different about who was invited to God's table. And through that little theological scrum that Peter and Paul get into in Antioch so many thousands of years ago, we get to the first point of what Paul is trying to teach us from this passage that speaks so, so crucially. There may not be a more important passage in the entire letter. And it has everything to speak to that impulse in us about being part of inner circles and having a seat at a table. Paul is here to tell Peter and here to tell us that when it comes to being invited to God's table, that invitation comes without qualification. There are no preconditions, prerequisites, resumes that you have to submit to be invited to God's table, period. You can be a law-abiding Jew and be invited. You can be a hypocritical Jew and be invited. You can be a Gentile who has no, not a clue about what the Mosaic law said and be invited to God's table. You can be a Gentile who finds a certain respect for God's law and starts to follow it for some of the reasons. Any of those situations, any of those conditions, you can come because to be invited to God's table is to be invited without qualification. Kids, you know who the popular kids are at school. What makes them part of that group? Uh, Because they have perfect teeth, because of what they wear, because of what their last name is, because of what their older brother or sister once was in the school, like how they, what, what they make. You know, all of those qualifications to become part of that little group at that table. And, you know, you think adults are immune? Of course not. Why, why do, what do adults have to do? What, like, what are your convictions? What do you really believe? How did you vote? What's your AGI? What's your network like? Conditions. The inner circle, the seat at the popular table. It has a set of conditions that allow you to be present, not at God's table. Not at God's table. Jew and Gentile are here, and there is no version of subscription to the Mosaic law that make, becomes a prerequisite for you to be admitted to God's welcoming table. That's the first thing he's out to tell us. Why, though, is that the case? Why is the invitation coming without qualification? It's because of the second thing he wants to tell us. And the second thing he wants to tell us He wants to tell us so badly that he says it twice in a row in two verses. Listen again to what he says starting in verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Full stop. Did he just make a racist comment? Is he saying that the Jews are nice, holy, law-abiding people and the Gentiles are necessarily sinful? No. It's, it's a nuanced way of putting that notion of sinners. When he talks about that, he's talking about Gentiles who have no access to the law. 
They weren't given the law. So in some ways, they don't know what the law requires of them. And so it's inevitable that they're going to be transgressing that law because they didn't know. But if you think he's saying that the Jews are naturally law-abiding and Gentiles are not, cue Romans chapter 2. He says there are some Gentiles who abide by a certain ethic and they don't even know about the law. And then there are Jews who know the law who couldn't stand up to the scrutiny of the law if they tried. So it's not as if the Jews and Gentiles, one is better than another. It's that the Gentiles don't have access to the law and that makes them even more bound to become sinners because they don't know what's asked of them. But when he says in verse 16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. It's a mouthful. And it sounds even a little bit of paradoxical. But what he's saying is this. Whether you are a Jew with the law or a Gentile without the law, this seat at God's table not only comes to you as an invitation without qualification. It comes to you with you having done nothing to merit your presence at the table. No version of your obedience to the law will ever gain you access to that table, metaphorically speaking. And that's why he says over and over again, it is not by works of the law that you would be justified. That word justified is just a, another way of saying what, what, how do you be right with him? How do you find his welcome? How is what's between you and God rectified? And what Paul is saying is, it is not by any kind of obedience that rectifies your situation with God. It is actually Jesus' faithfulness unto God that brings you to that table. And so yes, to have a seat at that table, you are invited without qualification, but second of all, you are admitted to it at his cost. At his cost. Um, Kids, if you are not part of the popular crowd, if you're not part of some crowd that you want to be part of, um, it would not surprise me to learn, it would probably not surprise you to learn that those who are in and you learn that you want to be in but are out, they might ask you to commit some sort of feat of daring to prove your worth to be in it. You have to show yourself eminently aligned with whatever they believe and you might have to do stuff in order to get your way in and Adults, I wish that it was not the same for you, but there are some inner circles that to become part of it, not only do you have to make sacrifices to become part of it, but you have to make compromises. Compromises of your integrity, compromises of your convictions, compromises of those who have been entrusted to your care, just so you can become part of the inner circle. Why do we do that, kids? Why do we want to Give something, pay something of ourselves. Why do we want to do that, adults? Why are we willing to, to make those kinds of idolatrous sacrifices if just to be part of that group? Belonging is okay. We all want to belong. Look, if you're here, you belong to each other. It's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with belonging. We need to belong to things. But when we start making payments of ourselves or of our convictions in order to become part of those groups, what does it say? It's not so much the belonging, it's the belief that we want to believe that we're okay, that we're enough, 
that were cherished, that were right. And that's why we do. And we go to such lengths to do it. Robert Farrer Capone said this, I don't know Capon or Capone, I'm sure he paid his taxes. He said this, we'll never be free until we are dead to the whole business of justifying ourselves. And one of the main ways that you and I try to justify ourselves is to do whatever we can to become part of some group that we think is the laudable group, the inner circle, the seat at the kids' popular table. We justify our existence in that way because we want to know that we're okay. But what if it costs you nothing to be at the only table and in the only inner circle that really mattered? What if it cost you absolutely nothing? What if it came entirely at God's cost? That's the gospel, by the way. And to those who hear it, it might be absolutely liberating or utterly terrifying to hear that. And Paul knows that sort of terror. He knows that sort of sense of it's too good to be true because he anticipates the objection. And the way he anticipates the objection, he gets us to the third thing that we learn about this passage that he's trying to get across to us. And that anticipation of the ejection starts in verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Okay, it's some thick words there, a lot of categories. What's he getting at there? He knows that there are some Jews and some Gentiles who are hearing him say, you have to set aside your reliance upon the law as a basis for thinking that you have a seat at God's table. You have to put it aside. And they are thinking to themselves, Paul, if I set that aside, then am I not exposing myself to the label of being a sinner? How so? If the Gentiles don't have access to the law and they inevitably are going to sin and now you're telling me that the law is not what brings me to a seat at God's table, then am I not in the same condition that the Gentiles were? Am I not inevitable going to be a sinner? Is not Jesus then some, somebody that loves, you don't mind if they sin, if he doesn't mind, he doesn't mind if you sin. Let me put it in a little bit more modern context. Imagine you going to a job interview or a college application interview and you sit down across the table from that interviewer and you pull open your satchel and you're about to present to them your resume for why you should be accepted and you pass across to them a blank piece of paper. And you are saying to them, I hope that this will get me in. And they will look at you like, I am sorry, I'm, I'm sorry, where's the real document? And then imagine yourself pulling a second set of documents from your satchel, which documents about 15 pages full of stuff, not the stuff that should get you in, but actually the stuff that should keep you out. Imagine pushing that document across the table and then looking them in the eye and say, will you bring me in? Will you accept me? Can you imagine a more terrifying prospect if you really wanted to get in? You tell everything that's great about yourself and leave out all the bad stuff. But Paul is saying, no matter what you do, you've got nothing. You have a blank page. To be admitted to that table, you've got a blank page. And in fact, if whatever pages you might be filling up, you actually find reasons why you shouldn't be. And, and people are terrified by that prospect of ever thinking that they can't use their law, their performance, their obedience as a basis for having a seat at God's welcoming table. 
It's nuts. It's, it's like, why would I want to do that? Why would I want to entrust myself to that message that there is nothing I can pay to get a seat at that table? And Paul says, fine. You want to make your obedience to the law as the measure of the reason why you should be accepted? Go ahead. Take, take that resume that had all the good things about it that you ripped up. Now, go ahead and, and sort of tape that back together and push that across. All you've done is shown yourself to be a greater lawbreaker than when you started. Because if you make any version of your obedience to the law as the basis for your acceptance, all you've done is prove yourself too much to be a sinner. Because you will have failed it. And that's why Paul says, it's through the law that I died to the law in order that I might live for God. What? Head scratcher, paradox, mind blower. I, through the law, I died to the law. What's he mean? When he says that he has died to the law, he means that he has satisfied everything that the law requires of him. I know it's a, it's a matter of um, ambivalence whether we bring in illustrations of, of corporal or capital punishment these days, but in Scotland, I'm told, that when someone is executed for a capital offense, after the execution has occurred, that person's file is stamped with one word at the top of the file, and that word is satisfied. That everything that the law required of that person has been satisfied. It can ask no more. Paul is saying that he has died to the law. That through the law he has died to the law, that he has satisfied everything that the law has demanded. And we think to ourselves, how in the world can that be true? He's died to the law that he might live for God. Why? For I have been crucified with Christ. That in Jesus' death on a cross for the sins of humanity, he satisfied everything that the law required of sin. He died, and in dying, he satisfied what the law did. And Paul is saying, for those who have put their faith in Jesus, they have been crucified along with him. That they share in what his crucifixion and satisfaction accomplished. And so that speaks to a profound doctrine of our faith that we would come back to on some another occasion over several weeks. It's called the doctrine of union. Which in so many words means that everything that, everything that is, is Jesus's is now ours by virtue of our faith in him. That we are in him and he is in us. And therefore what his crucifixion accomplished is accomplished for me. And therefore what does that mean? I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, Paul says. The life I live in the flesh, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Henrik Ibsen's novel, Peer Gint, it was cited in a, in a commentary on this passage from Eugene Peterson. Uh, he mentions a quote in a moment where um, a person visits an asylum, an insane asylum. And the warden of that asylum speaks of everybody who's in part of that asylum. And he says, they talk very sensibly, but it's all about themselves. They are, in fact, most intelligently obsessed with self. It's self, morning, noon, and night. We can't get away from self here. We lug it along with us even through our dreams. Oh, yes, young sir, we talk sensibly, but we're mad right enough. Yours and my default condition is to think entirely about one person only, you. 
You lug around that self like people in an insane asylum because that's the most important thing in your world. And Paul has come to say, if you've been crucified with Christ, you are now radically contingent in Jesus. You are now radically seen differently. You are seen by God as Christ, God sees his own son. I no longer live, but Christ who lives in me. Not only are you invited to this table without qualification, not only are you admitted to this table at his cost, but at this table you are dressed in his finest. That you are seen as Christ is seen. I just got back from Disney World. It was either save for retirement or go to Disney World. And like every good American, I opted for the route of instant gratification. But you know one of those stories, right? Cinderella, take courage and be kind, her dying mother says to her. And then at the end, when she hears about this ball, this wonderful ball that she'd love to go to, that now her wicked stepmother and stepsisters prevent her from going to, she can't go, she has nothing to wear. And then, bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. She is dressed in a more elegant raiment than anyone could imagine. And it was not one that she sewn. It was not one that she bought. It was not one that she merited. It was one that she was given. She was dressed in finer raiment than she could imagine. And she shows up and what is it? She is the belle of the ball. Because she is dressed in the finery, but not her finery. That, is what it means to be clothed in Jesus. That is what it means to say, I no longer live, but it is Christ who lives in me. The life I live, I live in the flesh. I live no longer by myself, but by faith in Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. You're invited without qualification. You're admitted his cost and you're dressed in his finest. That's the seat at God's table. That's the place in God's inner ring. So what does all of that have to do with what we said at the very beginning of this worship service. C.S. Lewis says, remember, you got to take measures. you got to take measures if you're going to avoid being seduced by this desire to become part of the inner ring. So what measures must you take? The first measure you have to take is this. To realize that if you follow that impulse you will be seduced by its dangers and its perils. He says, of all the passions, the passion for the inner ring is most skillful in making a man who is not yet a very bad man do very bad things. If you don't believe that, even in the last 72 hours, have we not heard another monstrous story of monstrous things being perpetuated for decades while people closed ranks to keep an inner circle an inner circle? Kids, please do not be surprised at the lengths that you might be seduced into going just to be part of a popular crowd. Adults, do not think yourself having graduated from the seventh grade because you are just as capable of doing very bad things to become part of that crowd. There is danger in it and there is also delusion in it because C.S. Lewis also said this at the end of that essay. Sorry. As long as you are governed by that desire, you will never get what you want. You are trying to peel an onion. If you succeed, there will be nothing left until you conquer the fear of being an outsider, an outsider you will remain. 
You want that so bad because you think that you'll be everything once you're there. And then when you get there, you will wonder, why did I fight so much for that? And why did I cost so much to get there? So, how do you? How do you leave it out? How do you conquer it? You have to repent. And you have to repent often. And how do you repent often? You have to remember that there is only one seat at one table that really matters. That admits you to that table without any cost to yourself. That will keep you at that table even if you fail it. And that is the table that was set for you at the cost of the son at his own blood where he will dress you in his finest. That's the gospel. And when you remember that, kids, when you remind yourself of that, adults, it may be that the impulse no longer has the same seductive draw that it might have had in the past. It's a fight. I know it. I remember lying to become part of a crowd. And I know I'm still susceptible to be that. When we remember that there is a seat at the only table that will love you for sure and not for anything that you've done, it may be that in your desire to belong, it will not lead you to give away your own soul. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.